Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Yeah, and good morning to you here, tuned to Bay FM 99.9, your community responsive radio station, your own and only radio station, here on the prow of the ship of Australia, you could say, right on the front there. Bit Titanic, isn't it? Good morning to uh, Steve McDonald. Good morning, Nick. Here I am at the pointy end. You're at the pointy end. We are at the pointy end, and I guess it's a, it's a quite a good metaphor, one could say, for us here on the the easternmost point of Australia, on the on the prow of that ship, on the Titanic, as we go forward into the future at, at a, a pace. It reminds me of 2012, you know, and when, uh, of course, it was 2012 here before it was 2012 in. Uh, the rest of the Western world. <laughs> and so we were able to tweet to except everybody, for, look, except we've, for New we've, Zealand. we've arrived, it's okay. Yeah, of course, New Zealand, of course. <laughs> Always first. Not, not to forget our Kiwi brothers and sisters. Absolutely not. And, and good morning to those Kiwi brothers and sisters who may be listening. You may be here because lots of you are, or you may be in New Zealand listening on bayfm.org at uh, 11 or so in the morning and uh, it would be nice if, you, if you're out there some New Zealand listeners you can always text us by the way on 04373 here it comes up on the computer wherever you are in the world speaking of being in front of us they certainly seem to be in front of us when it comes to politics don't they oh yes oh yes indeed and uh, although I, I have to say I was very impressed this morning to read that um, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has reshuffled his ministry. And in fact, Ken Wyatt, a Yamachi Wongi Nunga man, is the first Aboriginal person to hold the Indigenous Affairs portfolio. So we certainly have to make some sort of congratulations about that happening. That's, yeah, that's great news. Mm, Wonderful. Isn't it? Yeah, so we are going to be talking a bit today about climate, a bit of an update about some of the, the many expressions. And I, I guess for me, the complexifying of the climate debate, which I think is a good thing, we seem to be moving into a little bit more nuanced debate around climate. I mean, perhaps that's only some of us, but uh, I think there's a, there's some truth to that now. I think there certainly is some truth. I'm noticing a trend in the emergence of alternative news sources that are starting to take different perspectives rather than just fall in line with the, uh, the global warming agenda, yeah. as it seems to be, um, which is interesting. And uh, also... I think it's really important that we look at what's actually happening rather than get carried away with fear, fear-based fear uh, predictions and mm. projections mm. about what might happen. Yeah. And we'll also be looking in the second half of the show at a completely different topic, not unrelated also in some ways because nothing is, but uh, the topic of of uh, the, the rise perhaps in the uh, the understanding of, the experience of, the use of intuition, uh, ESP, of telepathy. Is it emerging on the planet? Are more and more people finding themselves more capable, having more experiences of these things? And what does it mean? Does it show us something about the way we are evolving? We certainly think it does. And we'll be talking a bit about that in the second part of the show, yeah. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate and spiral up. You're tuned to Future Sense here. It's 9.14 with myself, Nick Jeans. 
and Steve McDonald. And as I said, we're going to start today talking uh, about climate in particular and some of the uh, the current recent indications of what's happening with that very complex system that we know as climate here on this planet. We are indeed, and uh, there's been some very unusual weather in uh, the Northern Hemisphere over the last year or so, particularly a very, very cold winter in the USA, and uh, the spikes of both um, hot and cold temperatures seem to continue in varying places around the world, uh, including uh, causing drought here in Australia. Mm. So the, the I guess at the first point is that our climate system is a, is a complex adaptive system, I would argue, although most scientists d- wouldn't expect that the system is adaptive because that implies that the system has intelligence. Uh, personally, I think the system does have intelligence. And Seems uh, to be almost the key word in that, uh, in that uh, phrase complex. Adaptive system is the word adaptive to me. Yeah, and, I, and this is part of the challenge of our current climate science is it's being studied as a complex system but not a complex adaptive system, and that's one of the key pieces that's missing in my opinion. Mm. Uh, And when we look at complex systems and complex adaptive systems, uh, what we see is that when they go through change, they are quite volatile. And something that's characteristic of change in a complex system is what's called the slingshot effect, where you'll get, uh, like like the process of pulling back an elastic band on a slingshot, there's tension created by moving in one direction, and then all of a sudden the system will spike in the opposite direction, just like releasing that elastic band on a slingshot, and then you get a a big movement in the opposite direction. And this is a non-linear trajectory, and again, this is one of the challenges being faced by climate science at the moment, is that there is often an assumption that the climate is a linear system, and if it's getting warm somewhere now, it will continue to get warm there. Uh, indefinitely and again uh, the if we look at the global warming predictions that have been made ever since climate became an issue some years ago uh, and I guess most famously with Al Gore's movie uh, even if you go back and watch Al Gore's movie, uh, he's not talking about linear systems there. I mean, he is—he makes—he makes some linear su- assumptions based on the graphs, but part of his movie actually talks about um, warm weather changing the uh, the Atlantic ocean current yes shutting it down and which which brings an ice age so that's actually in his movie uh-huh. uh, if, you, if anybody cares to go back and look at it so um you get this non-linear trajectory in complex systems when they're going through change where tension builds from trending in one direction and then like the elastic band on the slingshot it drives really significant change in the opposite direction and during the lead up to a to major change in any complex system there'll be repeating small scale slingshots you know where it flips backwards and forwards and you get increasingly warm increasingly cold weather for example in a climate system until you reach a tipping point and a large scale trend occurs and then you get a you know a significant uh, mm. longer term trend in, in a particular direction and we can see this tra- uh, pattern in all sorts of complex systems and the stock market is an obvious one if you go pull up a stock market chart on your uh, internet browser then you'll see it ain't linear it certainly has a longer term linear trend but that changes it periodically uh, it goes up and down you know the boom and bust is uh, is the classic pattern there and within the boom and bust periods you get these smaller scale spikes in yeah. both directions and and often before a really significant change it will spike quite significantly in the opposite direction first mm. and then off it goes mm. uh, and there are many many other you know there are so many complex systems on this planet uh, we could even say that a person's health when someone comes down with the flu for example you'll you'll you might get hot you might get feverish you might get sweaty then you might go to bed and you might get chills yes so 
suddenly your body is uh, flipped in the other direction in order to cope with uh, the interruption or the disruption to the to the system. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And even you know, emotional transformation. Yeah. When we go through emotional change, we often go to the depths before we reach the subsequent highs. You know, and in fact, that is in in modern sort of uh, psychology, psychotherapy, and certainly new age uh, um, expositions of that kind of work. It is all about getting to that darkest, deepest, dirtiest part of yourself in order to transform it. I love the green on your face when you said that, Nick. <laughs> if I, only you could see it, folks. I do like to be in that space where people are going through stuff. And <laughs> Goodness me. Old anyway, alchemist at work. Moving right along. Yeah, uh, thank you. And then we, if you look at large scale, like social transformation, social systems, uh, you know, often you'll find that a social system won't actually go through significant change until there's chaos. You know, it works and it works and it works and then slowly it doesn't work so much and then it doesn't work some more and eventually it turns into chaos and then people go, okay, maybe we should change this and then it'll be reorganized and then it'll be all good again for a while. Mm. Uh, and so this this uh, complex systems change pattern is everywhere if you care to look for it. And if you go looking in complex systems for a linear trend that lasts for 100 years in the same direction, then I guarantee you probably won't find it uh, because it'll you know any trend in a complex system is made up of, of uh, a fractal pattern of this like a sine wave essentially that shows up I mean I have to ask the question immediately because as you're speaking I'm thinking like how many people on the planet and it's a big big generalization of course in so many ways but uh, are actually capable of or even want to start to look at things in a more complexified way in the way we're talking about, are able to or willing to? It's a good uh, question. And systems thinking really only emerged with what we're calling this new paradigm, okay, so which is layer six in, in Graves' model. So layer five being the modern scientific industrial era and, the, and that way of thinking, which emerged roughly about 300 years ago. Uh, that's a, a vast generalization, but it was roughly about 300 years ago that we had things like the uh, industrial revolution, scientific yeah. revolution, those sorts mm. of things, and, and uh, thinking shifted. And as I think we were saying on uh, a recent show, if you go back to the previous paradigm, the agricultural era, which was dominant you know, through the Middle Ages and, and really for thousands of years earlier than that, then thinking was significantly different. And there were some really interesting fixed ideas, like the fact that the Earth was the center of the universe and everything rotated around the Earth. And these things, while they seem extremely sensible at the time, Ultimately, they shift and change when we go through these paradigm shifts and our perspectives on reality change. I mean, people would argue that our science is now so far evolved from those, those that era of um, Galileo, for example, that you're talking about there, uh, that we, we can't, we don't make those mistakes anymore. We've, we've evolved somehow to a point where our science is much more, uh, you know, uh, certain and, and less sort of wacky. But actually, no. I guess you missed that recent <laughs> meeting of the Flat Earth Society, didn't you, Nick? <laughs> I didn't go. I had another appointment. I had an appointment right. with the uh, with the people who were trying to get to Alpha Centauri next week. Right. Okay. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yes, you know, we live in a very rich world and the interesting thing about these paradigms is the old ones really don't go away, uh, not for a long time at least anyway. They, they remain nested, you know, we, and we can find all of these different old paradigms in various pockets of society around yeah. the world. And, and really, if you take any, mm -hmm. you know, uh, society, like a, take a city, any city, then you'll find these layers of consciousness mm. embedded in different places in the city. Uh, and it's, it is also directly related to the complexity of life conditions so 
the more simple and stable your life conditions are, then the more you can get by on simple ideas and simple thinking and yeah. simple problem solving. And as yeah. life conditions become more complex, then your yeah. consciousness needs to adapt and it will adapt. In other words, there is a place where ignorance is bliss for some people. Exactly, mm. exactly. We're, we're looking for it. If anybody has any ideas, <laughs> please email us. Um, and the other thing I was going to say about complex system is that the calibration of a system usually involves numerous smaller changes until the balance is emer a balance emerges mm. you know and if you think i mean whatever you do whatever your hobby is just think about how you go through calibrating things you know if you're a musician and you're tuning a string uh, it's pretty rare just to turn the knob once and you're in tune i mean unless you're very very good at it yeah. but often you've got to you know turn it backwards and forwards a little bit little bit little bit and that's that same pattern of one direction the other direction one exactly direction. well uh, an old teacher of mine scott washington william whitecloud and people would be familiar with uh, his teacher back in the day used to talk about the same thing uh, shooting a rocket to the moon we, we assume that the technology means you know rockets are shot to the moon and it's like from here to there and it's all planned out it's all the algorithms and technology but it's not true it's create and adjust it's aim and it's deviation and then actually having to correct again that's deviation right. correct deviation correct yeah, deviation yeah. correct yeah create and adjust as, as, as scott used to call it it reminds me of the apollo 13 movie where they lost their uh, proper control of the you know directional uh, yeah. Uh, adjustment of the spacecraft on the way back and uh, they had to it wasn't it wasn't working the control lever to fly the ship wasn't working in the correct sense and he had to try and work out which direction he needed to push the stick to make it go left very interesting and that you know that's that's a really good analogy uh, for um, the process of discovery of how to navigate a complex system is you know you encounter something and it seems chaotic but through a process of analysis and practice and experience, you can work out which way to pull the lever, uh, you know, or multiple levers to, to make a correction in a certain thing. And, and I guess that's a really good analogy for yeah. our approach to understanding climate at the moment is we really don't understand how the climate works. And, and by climate, I'm talking of, you know, periods of 30 years plus, the, the weather patterns over that time. Yeah, not just the weather, which is a different thing. Not just actually. the weather, which we incidentally still can't predict accurately, um, you know, a couple of weeks out and uh, yep. then everything goes chaotic. Um, and so we're still going through this process of, of, you know, calibrating our own understanding of how the hell this works and, mm. and how much influence we, we're having on it and, you know, how to, if, if it's possible at all to obtain any kind of control over it, which I honestly doubt at a global scale, not anytime soon anyway, you know, how, do you, how, do, how could we, would we, might we go about understanding how that works? And, and we're very much uh, in the dark mm. when it comes to that. Um, and it's been an extremely cold winter in North America. Yeah, yeah, we've had lots um, of things. Lots of lots of things currently happening there in terms of, uh, of crops and so forth. Yeah. Yes, uh, the Canadian government just issued a written report uh, on which includes a report of sea ice, uh, and uh, this is from uh, quite recently this year, 2019, and the current levels of sea ice in Canada are the highest recorded since 2004, which is quite interesting. Uh, and we'll, we'll post a link to that if you'd like to take a look at it. On uh, We'll post it on Twitter. And, uh, of course, the uh, U.S. agricultural industry has been hit very, very hard uh, over the past season by heavy snowfall during winter, uh, an extended winter, which really still hasn't finished in some areas, even though it's now May. Uh, 
uh, they're in places which are still uh, getting cold weather and snow. Well, as of uh, a few days ago, the U.S. corn planting is the slowest on record for this time of year. So obviously, weather has shifted significantly, and uh, the the ground is actually frozen in many places. They can't plant. Yeah, there even more so in Canada. There are compa- compounding issues, and mm. in the larger conversation that we have on this show about the collapse of the old paradigm and the emergence of the new paradigm and the transformational change that is already underway, Uh, it's very important for us to start to consider the compounding effects of some of these things. So so it's it's fine to just look at the news and say, oh, this happened. But then when you start to think about the implications of that, they can uh, add up to very, very serious uh, issues somewhere down the track. Um, And uh, California... uh, I've got an article here from the LA Times uh, from uh, recently. It says, winter has come to California in May. Record rainfall, more snow on the way. Um, So Southern California has been hit by the wettest winter in years. And uh, two months after the official end of winter, uh, the rain and snow just keep coming. California was clobbered uh, by another storm recently, which dumped snow on the Sierra and uh, set record uh, for uh, rainfall in the Southland. So it's it's been rather unusually cold over there, and as Nick was just saying, uh, the, the um, crop plantings have been disrupted for various reasons, whether it be that the ground is still frozen, or, or in the Midwest, farmers are uh, um, facing devastation following Midwest floods. They were hoping to ride out the U.S.-China trade war by storing their corn and soybeans anywhere they could, according to this article from Reuters, uh, in bins, plastic tubes, in barns, or even outside. But now the unthinkable has happened: record floods have devastated a wide swathe of the farm belt across Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and several other states. Early estimates of lost crops and livestock are approaching $1 billion in Nebraska alone. So yes, it's a, it's a complex equation. One place can't plant, another place floods, another place drought. Yep, in uh, Iowa, uh, water treatment plants have been shut down and they've had to truck in fresh water, uh, as well as having um, the uh, agricultural industry disrupted also. Uh, and uh, U.S. farmers are starting to think about uh, insurance issues around crop losses. Um, and uh, as you mentioned there, the, the U.S.-China trade war is also yeah. an interesting factor here. So uh, Trump came out recently and said that the U.S. government would buy crops off U.S. farmers who are being impacted by the trade war with China. So I think uh, the USA exports a lot of grain uh, if I remember correctly, I think something like um, 40% of the world's uh, corn, I think it is, comes from the USA as an export. And so all of the crops that are usually exported to China, it looks like they won't be due to the, the, the uh, war that's going on, the trade war between China and the USA. Trump's come out and said that the US government will buy uh, those export crops so the farmers don't miss out. But now it's looking like the farmers won't be planting uh, a good mm. percentage of those crops and so how's that going to work I wonder well even uh, in Australia uh, for the first time in 12 years we are going to import wheat as uh, drought has eaten so much into grain production here that's a report from last week in the Guardian um, and uh, also there are therefore biosecurity concerns raised over import from Canada as Australia's winter crop forecast is to drop 20% below 20 year long term average so Great disruption, and when I think I mentioned it uh, the other week, even or whenever I mentioned it, or somewhere I mentioned it, uh, you'll notice already that some uh, some of our produce 
in stores here are very expensive. Strawberries, $10 a punnet, for example. There's all sorts of uh, clearly um, peaks and, uh, and troughs in, in supply and, uh, and pricing. Yeah, food, I guess uh, increases in food price. Pricing is probably one of the most immediate impacts that we're going to see. Um, there was also an article recently about uh, the Australian uh, Grain Organisation, which I'll grab in a minute and come mm. back to. But um, there are there are a whole bunch of implications here which need to be unpacked. You know, the, the, probably the first and most obvious is the, the impact on farmers themselves and uh, delayed planting or planting that might not even happen in some particular areas for the summer crop uh, in North America and then loss of income around that and loss of uh, food supply as a result. Um, if just looking at corn in particular, corn's an interesting crop because it goes into so many different things and uh, um, the, uh, what's the sugary syrup, corn syrup, corn syrup. Uh, that they make from corn goes uh, goes into all sorts of different foods as a, yeah. as a sugar additive. And most of corn produced in, in the US is, uh, is genetically modified too, of course. So there was implications, biosecurity implications there anyway for those foods entering the food chain. Well, they're already in the food chain, corn syrup. Corn is probably one of the biggest and, and most contentious crops on the planet now, along with things like cotton, of course. But in terms of our food supply, corn, as you're saying, is everywhere. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's problematic, I think. It is very problematic. And when it comes to genetically modified crops and uh, herbicides like glyphosate, the flooded farmlands mean that these substances are being spread beyond where they were being used. Uh, and that's causing all sorts of issues. Yeah. And many of the farmers now are using genetically modified seeds, which are glyphosate ready glyphosate re- roundup ready in, in other yeah. words the the plant seeds have been uh, genetically modified so that they won't get killed by glyphosate and so you can spray glyphosate on the crops it'll kill everything else except that particular uh, plant and uh, and so um, if far- for farmers who might not be using genetically modified crops the floodwaters are splitting the glyphosate residue into their uh, paddocks and and uh, potentially killing their next crop as a result so it's it's a you know it's a interesting complex compounding issue that we're facing here um, and then beyond beyond the impact on farmers we've then got uh, the the lack of food supply and the need to dig into uh, stored reserves grain reserves and as those grain reserves get depleted if we have another cold winter mm. next year um, then eventually you can kind of project that out to the point where we're going to have a major, major crisis. And there are a number of predictions which have been made over recent years, uh, one by Armstrong Economics, which is based on Martin Armstrong's computer algorithm, uh, which is quite successful in predicting key turning points in uh, the financial markets. And his computer has been saying for a while that uh, around 2024, there's going to be a spike in food prices globally. Uh, and so what's what's happening now is is a clear indicator that is pointing in that direction. Yeah. And uh, and then taking it a little bit further, if we look at the uh, amazing study of solar dynamics done by Professor Valentina Zarkova in the UK, um, she has come out and predicted based on the cycles that she's identified in activity on the sun and how that impacts the solar wind which blows over the earth and then flow on effects uh, to planetary climate. She has come out very, very clearly in a recent talk in London, which we've mentioned earlier on the show uh, in another episode, 
um, that uh, she is pretty confident we're going to see widespread food shortages at a global scale between 2028 and 2032. And she said very clearly this is going to be of such a scale that if there isn't organised preparation, then uh, it will be quite a crisis. Interesting times. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on BayFM. Uh, it's 9.44 here on Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. A couple of tracks there. That last one was called When That Helicopter Comes by Andrew Bird. Played that for our helicopter pilot over here, Mr. McDonald. Okay. Um, and um, and if you look at the lyrics, it's by Andrew Bird. Rather rather extreme lyrics, but we won't go into that. Kind of appropriate tune in some ways. And uh, before that, Emily Wuramara, Indigenous Australian artist, and a track I can't pronounce, Nagara Ikiuji Nenamana. I can't do that. I'm not going to try to. I just did and failed. Um, we're talking here on Future Sense this morning, first up, for a little while longer, about uh, climate on the planet and uh, some of the indications at the moment of the trends and, uh, and um, directions, if we can determine that, in this complex adaptive system that we, we live in. We're particularly talking about what's actually happening, uh, not fear-based predictions. And uh, we know that there's been a very, very heavy snowfall uh, over the last US winter and also uh, in Europe as well, heavy snowfalls. And uh, as we just reported uh, on this show, sea ice levels are up in Canada, in the Canadian government's official report, the current sea ice levels uh, have returned to levels uh, they had back in 2004. So that's a, a big uptick in uh, sea ice levels if you look at the graph. And interestingly, the the graph presented, the overall report by the Canadian government fits very much with the widespread global warming uh, scenario, which, which is just so common now, even to the point that recently Apple News banned a particular um, news reporting service mm, from their platform news. because they started to report something other than the global warming mm. story and the and uh, the the reason for their removal from the Apple platform was that they were presenting science which was out of step with the majority of, of mainstream science which is just crazy and it's it's this really is an example of um, these ideas becoming dogma and not science because in science you look at all the evidence. Mm. Anyway, yes, I was that, saying uh, big snowfalls. Yeah, and, I just want to say on that yeah. last point, though, is that this notion of uh, you're either with us or against us is very George W. Bush, Bush in 2001 or so, yeah. after 9-11, are you with us or against us? There, there is that uh, that sort of tone, unfortunately, in some of the global um, climate change debate, and that needs to be looked out for. You know, we, It's not about us being against or you being against or someone being against something. We need to find the actual truth and the complexity of the truth that actually can be seen, as you're saying, actually what's really going on and the science that may con- contradict some of the, the status quo's uh, um, directions and opinions, but nevertheless to take it on board at least. That's right, and the, 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 ki- the dynamics that are at the root of this particular issue from a human consciousness perspective are that there's a regressive search going on at the moment mm. which is uh, triggered by the fact that our current way of living, our scientific industrial way of living, clearly is not solving our problems effectively anymore. And so we are looking for different values to live by and the first response in any human transformation process is to look backwards 
and look for a place when our values did seem to work and life was okay and life was stable. And in this case, it's taking us back to what are effectively agricultural era, like Middle Ages kind of values, which are very absolutistic, very black and white, and it is either for or against right or wrong, black and white. That's that's how the value set worked back then. And so that's why we're seeing an upsurge in mm. what people are calling right-wing uh, fundamentalism, yes. those sorts of things. And the emerging paradigm, which is this humanistic network-centric paradigm, hasn't really uh, become uh, widespread enough to bed down what the new values are. They're still, a, still in the formative stage. Uh, and what we do know, though, is that this new way of being human that's emerging is very much about being able to take different perspectives on things. And that in itself is deconstructing our modern scientific industrial science because science was very much about finding the evidence and then, okay, this is the new truth. Uh, and that new truth could be superseded next week by more evidence, which gives us another new truth. Even Einstein was superseded. Exactly. Uh, and um, the difficulty with that is that truth uh, in the new paradigm becomes relative. And so it depends on who you are and who, you know, where you're standing and how you're looking at something as to what the truth actually is. Mm. And, and that in itself is uh, you know, adding more complexity to the mix. And, and with that, you talk also about this new emergence of this layer, this window that we're talking about, which is termed green in Claire W. Graves' work, layer six, the last layer before what he called the momentous leap, which we talk about on this show too. But that tendency uh, of people emerging into six, into that, uh, that more... Um, egalitarian, uh, sharing, community-oriented perspective uh, is also the tendency in the early stages is also, as you talk about, to sort of flatten information out, to make sense of a kind of, yeah. uh, to make sense of a very complex systems in a sort of fairly linear way at this time. Yes, uh, and particularly in the emergent stages of a new paradigm, there's a very strong reaction to the old paradigm because the old paradigm doesn't seem to be working anymore. There's, there's a natural sort of, uh, um, you know, backlash against the old ways. And yeah. that's playing out at the moment as a desire to pull down hierarchies. Because under the old paradigm, hierarchies have been dominant mm. and they've been dividing and uh, they've actually um, got to the point where they're past their usefulness mm. and they're starting to cause damage to society. And so well, the, the instinct is that people want to flatten those hierarchies out. Um, and return, you know, return a voice to the people, yes. which is one of the, the things that comes from flattening the hierarchy. Instead of just hearing from whoever's, you know, on top of the mountain with the loudspeaker, we pull the mountain down, and so everybody now has an equal voice. And of course, many of those hierarchies are seen to be and are likely to be, and we're seeing evidence of uh, corrupt um, and uh, deception, deceiving in the, in the in the max to to a point where uh, you know twisted uh, truth and twisted the the economics of the planet, arguably. So it's a good reason that people emerging into this stage actually see yes, it that way absolutely and seek and to flatten that out there's usefulness in it but as with everything you know there are pros and cons and so one of the difficulties about flattening hierarchies is um, not all hierarchies are dominant some hierarchies are nurturing and so if you're pulling down all hierarchies hey, you're also pulling down nurturing hierarchies and uh, this general uh, trend to flatten things out is even being applied I, I mentioned earlier the Canadian government's report on sea ice which has just come out and there's a, a trend chart here which shows the plots for every year going back to about 1968 of sea ice levels which are up and down, up and down. And they've drawn a, a straight trend line right through all of those uh, data points from 1968 to the present year. 
And in drawing a flat line right through the middle, they've actually uh, lost the detail of the mm. small slingshot effects which mm. are happening in there. And if you if you disregard the flat line, which is actually in, on a downward trend, mm. um, which is fitting with the global warming mm. uh, dogma, yeah. um, if you take that away, then you can see that there are actually little slingshot effects within the sea ice, and it's going up and down. It's going up and down. You know, there were some really high sea ice levels in nineteen around nineteen seventy three, seventy eight, uh, eighty three, uh, ninety three, uh, and again. Um, in sometime between 93 and 98 and then uh, the levels dropped down again and there's just been a significant uptick so we went right down to a very low level of sea ice it looks to be around about 2012 ish and then since then there's been a sharp uptick in the sea ice but again it's it's not been a linear thing it's been in these little slingshots you know so mm. it's gone up and then it's gone down it's gone up and gone down and, and the most recent one has gone back up to uh, the equivalent of levels in 2004. And so one of the implications of this, uh, what is effectively dumbing down, you know, by flattening things out is you lose the detail. Yeah. And within the detail, often you can find causative uh, effects. Mm. And, and I guess that's the thing is we haven't come or that there are only a few people on the planet, it would seem that we're, we're seeking to find where those people are, and that's what we allude to here, who are looking at those uh, those points that are outside of that, uh, that flattening trend trend what are the lows and the highs that jump yeah. back and forth and what do they mean and what are the influences that are, that uh, may be happening on the, the planet's climate and all that is is considered in that in those times and that's what we're we're uh, hoping to expand is people's consciousness about the, the very many adaptive and uh, complex factors in this system yeah and uh, i mentioned earlier uh, the impact of climate on australia's food production yeah. and i just want to quickly uh, talk about a couple of articles, recent articles there. You mentioned that Australia for the first time is importing wheat. Uh, it's the first time in 12 years that we've had to, our grain production has been down so much that we've had to import wheat. And um, Grain Corp, Australia's largest grain handler, uh, has just recorded a $59 million half-year loss due to drought here in Australia and uh, particularly grain production in the eastern states due to lack of rainfall. And if you think about the big increase we've had in uh, snow and ice in the northern hemisphere during winter and that wasn't just in North America but also in Europe the uh, there were very very significant snowfalls and some unusual snowfalls in places that don't get snow like in Greece and and in London for example and the way that water gets locked up uh, atmospheric water gets locked up in ice and snow and then it kind of makes sense that some areas would probably lose rainfall as a result of that mm. and so we're seeing yeah. drought patterns and uh, dry weather which also played out last year in the uh, the dryness in California and the forest fires which resulted mm -hmm. from that so so this is the nature of our climate it's a complex volatile system it doesn't go on a linear trend and even while there's you know record snowfalls happening on one side of the planet, we've got droughts and fires and those and crop losses from uh, lack of rainfall in other parts of the planet, and, and this is this is the way it works. Mm. You, we mentioned glyphosate before, and uh, those those radical um, climate changes are also, of course, having an effect on and the the, the use of pesticides. The use of fertilizers, for example, all the poisons you could argue in our environment for a long time, agriculturally used, and many other factors, have contributed to, of course, various kind of pests uh, increasing in uh, in numbers, 
and uh, various kinds of diseases. So we've got, for example, in China, a report a few days ago of the army worm, which is to bite China's under-pressure food supply within two months as, a tra- as the trade war tariffs limit US crop imports. At the same time, China's already been forced to slaughter millions of pigs with African swine fever, affecting all 31 autonomous regions and provinces within just nine months. So all of these, of course, complexify even more the, the global food supply and uh, how we grow, what we grow. And glyphosate, of course, is highly challenged around the world now, finally, and we've seen a couple of big decisions uh, this year. Recently, I think someone, I haven't got that in front of me, someone was, uh, was awarded $2 billion, I believe, and uh, an earlier decision uh, was awarded um, a guy in the States about $250 million. So there is this change now coming on in the perspective of things like glyphosate, even to the point where MIT uh, um, in, in the USA has reported that half of all children will be autistic by 2025, warns a senior research scientist at MIT, and the evidence pointing to glyphosate toxicity and the overuse of Roundup herbicide on our food as a prime cause of that. Yeah, that scientist noted that the side effects of um, autism mm. closely mimic those of glyphosate toxicity, which is really interesting. Yes. And uh, I, I remember a, an article from a while ago looking at uh, the widespread presence of glyphosate in all sorts of products, even down to like women's sanitary products from uh, you know cotton production yes. and those sorts of things. That's right. It's just, just got into everything, it seems. Um, you, you you put up a report here from 2016, uh, it's only two and a half years old, that the FDA in America, the Federal Drug Administration, suspended testing for glyphosate residues in food. So, of course, you've always got that political implication, that uh, political in, in, uh, interference occurring in many of these issues where there's so much money involved. That's right, resulting from the corporate capture of government where the, the influence of those with money over those in power uh, dominates, basically. Mm, yeah. yeah. So we've got all those things to look at. And in this region, uh, it was interesting, I said to Steve Off-Air, I was driving through my Oakham yesterday and I saw a, a, a man uh, amongst his trees down on the, on the fence line on not really rural properties, more like a tree change property, and he was spraying away without any sort of covering. Clearly he was spraying a, a sort of herbicide. It was, it was probably glyphosate. It's sold in the stores around here. It's sold in Bunnings still and so forth. Uh, and, uh, you know, you look at that and go, well, where is that, uh, where is that roundup actually going to end up on a, a sort of lowlands where it's already pretty wet? We mentioned before yep. rain, flooding and so forth, spreading these, the effects of, of glyphosate and other chemicals as well. You know, we really don't know what we're doing to our environment. Still, we should be you know, clearly uh, having a fairly clear perspective about the, the influences, but we're only just beginning to get there, hopefully. Yeah, Going back uh, roughly 20 years, I had a little hobby farm. I was in, living in Mackay in central Queensland at the time in, in a bit of a tropical area there just near the Whitsunday Islands and flying the rescue helicopter. And I had a lot of spare time and ended up buying a, a five-acre plot in amongst some sugarcane farms. And uh, my, my wife at the time, Simone, and I uh, got into a bit of gardening and, and cropping. And it became apparent really, really quickly how difficult it is just to cope with weeds and you know grasses and things that you don't mm-hmm. want growing around yeah. your crops. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really hard work, uh, really if, hard work if you're not going to use some kind of poison. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we ended up, after sort of doing a lot of investigation things, going for a, a um, 
permaculture kind of a setup, which seemed, which was clearly the most effective way mm. of doing it. But in conventional, we, we bought the, this five acres that had a few hundred fruit trees and they were planted in a conventional sense and it's with, with basically monocropping. It's very, very difficult to deal with the, um, the weed and insect issues that mm. monocropping throws up. And I think this is going to be part of the longer term transformation is that we really need to move away from monocropping and yeah. uh, into some of these emerging amazing forest base yes uh, based, uh, you know multi-cropping type arrangements many of you out of there may have already heard of syntropic farming yeah, which is a bit of an extension of uh, or it's not the same as permaculture but it owes a bit to permaculture you could say and these sort of new uh, new structures of how we grow our food how we farm are, are really um, are coming online especially in this area and that sort of relocalization we've talked about here and people like uh, Helena Norberg Hodge and others in this region who have been advocating for that relocalization of our food and not just our food supply really as much as we possibly can because if if climate and everything else and political instability is going to create as, as many problems as we can likely foresee most of us now we really need to find a, a deeper way I would say the word I would use a deeper way of being in communities where we really actually do the work to construct uh, as much as we can an independence from the food supply the food chain and we're very fortunate in this region to be able to grow almost anything and to have at this at this time a lot of water most of the time so we're very fortunate and as much as you can get into that that little veggie garden or grow a few a few trees in a sort of uh, you know organic way that they just come together then do it it's very interesting it. it's very interesting to ponder the intelligence behind the process of evolution when we look at what's going on on the planet at the moment some of the problems that are arising and the very very clear evolutionary trends that are emerging with this new paradigm towards decentralization and uh, re-inhabitation of, of the village, relocalization of sourcing of everything, basically local food production, local mm. all sorts of production. Yeah. Um, it, it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view that we are moving in that direction because there's a clear need emerging uh, to move away from the old centralized uh, methods. And it's a very strong indication of this movement into this next value system of green, of, of layer six, this relocalization and, and seeking to work in community and be together and do things together and create a, a foundation within your own local networks. Yeah, and if you're particularly interested in the emerging challenges of food production and food supply, mm. particularly in the light of the possibility of further cold winters, which are, may continue to disrupt the food supply as it's currently doing around the world, then I recommend uh, a podcast called the Ice Age Farmer Podcast. Uh, and uh, it's uh, run by a chap called Christian. I'm not sure if he's on the name, but uh, it's it's very interesting. He seems to have a background in uh, trading, like markets uh, that trade uh, food futures and those sorts of things. So and so he's particularly driven to take note of trends around the world and how that's going to implicate uh, or the implications on food prices and food supply. And yeah. I'm finding it quite interesting to listen mm. to Ice Age Farmer. It's on uh, iTunes and probably other platforms as well. Mm. Fantastic. And um, just before we finish on yeah. this topic, one other thing which has just happened over the weekend, which is quite interesting, is that a quite a significant volcanic eruption in Indonesia, uh, Mount Sinabung, with uh, a strong explosion that occurred and a volcanic plume rising to 50,000 feet, uh, which definitely would have some kind of cooling implications for the area that it impacts. Indeed. And predictions are that we're going to see an increase in volcanic activity during this period of Grand Solar Minimum, which is just beginning now and probably lasting for about 30 years. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia. 
at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.